Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. aspect of the flood, the wondrous aspect of the aftermath of the flood and, and even the precursor leading up to the flood, what God had stated his intentions, what God had planned to do, what God had communicated to Noah that he was going to do, is that God could have done anything he wanted to do. In distinction, he could have started all over and said that every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. Therefore, I'm going to blot out mankind from the earth completely, utterly and completely, including Noah and including everyone, because he was the creator God of all things. He could have done it. He can do it because he's fully in control and he's fully sovereign now. He won't do it in this way anymore. And he didn't do it in this way because of God's word to Noah. Because God's plan to Noah, because God was very specific to Noah. And he said, you are a righteous man, blameless in your generation. You walk with me. Noah was a man who walked with God. And he said, I'm going to bring you the means of salvation through this ark. But in God being sovereign and the creator God of all things, he didn't have to come to Noah and say that. He could have completely started all over. He could have flooded the earth entirely. No ark. That could have been it. But he didn't. God had a plan. God personally came to Noah and communicated his plan and said, I'm going to continue the line of all the earth through you. Because God uses mankind through generations to do his will on this earth, to bring him glory on this earth, to testify to his great renown to testify to his glory, to testify to God's story. The fact that God loves mankind more than mankind could be loved by each other or by anyone else or anything else. God's love is intense and it's passionate. It's complete and it's unmatched. Because God is the creator God of all things. Because God created man in his own image, because he chose to create mankind, because he chose to have a relationship with mankind, because he chose to let himself be known, be vulnerable in certain aspects in relationship with mankind. This is the God we worship. This is the amazing and tender and powerful and compassionate love of the God we worship. And this is a love like no other. This is an intentional, driven, endearing, loving God like no other. Let's pray. Holy God and wonderful God, the God who I feel so tender towards, and so fortunate that you choose to be in relationship with me, fortunate that you choose so lovingly and compassionately to use someone like me. God, I rely on you. I rely on your Holy Spirit. I rely on your Holy Scriptures and what you want to say to us today, God, 
I am not relying on myself. I'm not relying on my abilities. I'm not relying on my spirit, or I should say my, my humanness. I am relying on the Holy Spirit working through me. God, please work through me to speak and to act and to convey that which you want us to hear. You're so amazing, God, and you're so loving, and you're so tender, and you're so generous to your people. Illuminate your word to us today. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Folks, we are in Genesis chapter 8 today. If you have your Bibles, please join me. Open up to Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Last week, we covered that God led Noah and his family and the creatures out of the ark after the flood. After the flood of the entire known world at this time, depending on the interpretation, that was either where all of mankind lived on our globe, or it was the entire globe to the top of every mountain. The scripture says that it was 15 cubits over the top of the mountain, destroying all living flesh. But again, depending upon how inhabited the world was at that time, it was either to the top of Everest or whatever was the tallest mountain worldwide, or it was over the top of the mountain of all known flesh at that time. And God so lovingly and so faithfully led Noah and his family by means of the ark, and over one year inside of a very large, very full, due to animals and creatures and food and everything that comes with that, smells, sounds, and all. For over one year, God led them through his means of salvation in this way. Perseverance, preservation from the known world before the flood by means of water, some form of symbolic baptism, if you will, to the other side, because God is a good and a loving and a generous God. And we pick it up now in Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah, what did he do after the flood, after God led him outside of the ark? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, but never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We see a very faithful God in this, folks. We see a very tenderhearted, a very loving God, a very provisional God. We see Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. I mentioned briefly last week that while the floodwaters were even still on the earth, when Noah sent out the dove, that the Noah, uh, excuse me, Noah sent out the dove, the dove plucked a fresh olive leaf and brought it back to the ark. God was already restarting vegetation on the earth after a massive flood, which likely would have killed most of the vegetation as a means of provision. But because there is a lot in this scripture, let's get to it. First, the aspect of covenant. God first mentions the covenant to Noah in Genesis 6, 18. Let's read this. And then we see it fulfilled in today's passage. That God said to Noah in verse 13, 613, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Therefore, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And we skip down to verse 18. And God says, well, right before 18, he says, everything that is on the earth shall die, but... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Then he continues to say, and of every living thing, two by two. And we see here in today's passage, and this is just Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17, seven more mentions of the word covenant. Actually, I think those are all just in the first part of Genesis 9 that God is a God of covenants. We talked before about how in recent weeks, or maybe this was back during the Adamic covenant or the covenant God made with Adam, as some call it, back in Genesis 2, where God gives the command and God says, for obedience, there will be reward. For disobedience, there will be repercussion. But God is reiterating his relationship with Adam and then subsequently with Eve. So we can look at that as a covenant. We see with Noah here that God is describing such a personal relationship again. This is a covenant with Noah because, one, specifically God says it, but two, because of the personal nature of it, because God describes, again, reward for obedience. Noah, here it is. This is what I'm going to do. I'm directly telling you this is what I'm going to do. I will be your God. You will be my person, people, i.e. his wife and his sons and their wives. And I will carry you through if you trust me in faith and obedience. And that's what Noah did. God outlined how to build this ark, this means of salvation. The salvation was in trusting God. It wasn't just simply the ship. The salvation was by means of faith. God calls us all to faith, and he called Noah to faith, and he said, trust me, the world has never been flooded, but I'm going to flood the earth. And Noah must have wondered, what does that mean exactly? I've never seen that before. I haven't heard of that before. But he trusted God. So he took however long that it took, and by whatever means and pulley systems that it took to build this massive ship, which could have taken decades and decades. And he's building it on dry land in anticipation of this massive flood to come. This took faith. And God looks down and God is honored by Noah's obedience in faith. God says to call them two by two, call all of the animals, call all of the creatures two by two with you into the ark. Noah did that. 
And God looks down and God is honored by Noah's obedience in faith. And God says, lead them into the ark and bring enough food for everyone and all the creatures for over. He didn't say for over a year, or maybe he did, but we don't have that recorded in scripture. Actually, I'm inclined to believe that Noah and his wife and the other people in the ark did not know how long it would be. Because he went up to the ark and he sent out the raven and then he sent out the dove because he was checking to see the conditions outside the ark to see they knew the flood, they knew the rain had stopped, but the earth was still flooded and they had to wait on God. So they bring all this food and all of these provisions into the ark. They bring all these animals into the ark. And this also is a expression, an expression of his faith. And God looks down from heaven and he's honored by Noah's obedience. And it makes sense because it said Noah walked with God, that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Does that mean that he was sinless? No, it doesn't. The righteous, the Bible says, live by faith in God. And God was going to use this ark and Noah's faith to save them. And to continue the line and what we see in covenant, yes, I'm getting back to the word covenant, that it's not just a promise. It's not just a word. Covenant is something greater. It's something deeper. This is a personal relationship connection from God with man. Or you could say with God and man together. God comes to man or God comes to a people and he says, I will be your God you will be my person, you will be my people, multiple. We will be in relationship together. And if you do this, if you do this good or this obedience, there is this reward. And if you disobey the covenant, there will be this judgment, if you will, or a consequence. We see this over and over again with the people in the Old Testament, with God's people, the, the people of Israel. And as you read through the different books of the Old Testament, you read that this reiteration of God's expression of, I will be your God, you will be my people. I want to be in relationship with my people. But how my people know me, how my people understand me, how my people can get to know me is they need to obey my commandments because God is expressing to his people these are the attributes of God when you love God you are like God in that way I'm not saying you are God I'm saying that you are like God in the expression of that when you feel it in your heart when you feel that love for God God has this type of love for himself, first of all, and God also has this type of love for you. So when you love God, you're basically doing what God is feeling for you. And that's how a two-way relationship, I'll say it, because a relationship requires two people, and it's also at the max two people, except for God and his church, which could be analogous of two people, albeit the church is representative, obviously, of all believers. But a two-way relationship or just a relationship is marked by its love. It's mutual love. And love is not a feeling. It's not just a feeling. The feelings are included and emotion is included and thoughts are included and expressions of both thoughts and feelings are included. It is also commitment. And I will say at the large part, it is covenant. The world may try to understand love. The world may approach love. Pagans, atheists, other false religions may try to live by love, but they do not understand love to the same depth and the same degree as knowing God Almighty. God's love is like no other love. God's love for you is like no other love 
you have ever known and you will ever know. And I'm not sure we fully understand that now, but in heaven, after this life is over, we will. You know how you understand love in part and you get all sorts of emotions that come from love in part. Whether it's dating, so a, a romantic type of love, or it's a best friendship love, or it's a love that you have with your sibling, or you have with your mother, your father, or with your son, or with your daughter. And you understand love to some degree, and it feels strong. It feels good. It feels like commitment. It feels like you are known, and the other person knows you. And I think that's something that lies at the very base of the human condition is our desire to love someone else or i.e. know them personally and also to feel loved or feel or be known personally. We want someone to really know us. Sometimes we, we pretend that we don't. We've been hurt or all the different feelings or the different sins that we have struggled with, do struggle with, I whatever it is. We may say, no, it's far better to block it all off, build walls around our heart, build walls around our life, and not to be known. But still, at its core, you do want it. You do want to be known. Because that is love. And God's love is like nothing else. And covenant is representative of this greater love. Let's look into this here. You may have seen a lot of recognizable phrases in today's passage. Let's start at the beginning, 820. Now, we haven't seen this specifically yet in this language. But what do we see in 820? The Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is an expression of worship that we will seek now throughout the scripture. It's also a marker of remembrance for what God has done. And Noah took some of every clean animal, which is obedient for a sacrifice, is what that means, and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God has certain requirements for what is glorifying to him in worship. And specifically in the Old Testament, when he said, you will offer burnt offerings to me, you will do it with this spotless animal. Or when you're offering a bird sacrifice, that it has to be these specific birds. And that is, and clean and unclean is a whole nother sermon, and we'll get to that. But Noah took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So when Noah, or anyone, worships God in a way that God sets out for worship, how do you think God responds? That's verse 21, the next verse. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the pleasing aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever stri again strike down every living creature as I have done. Let's go back to Genesis 4, verse 4. You may have remembered something here about sacrifice. Now I should back up to verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. The language there does not mean that Cain brought a firstborn of his flock. It means that as Cain brought fruit of the ground, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. It's Genesis 4, 4. And we see here almost an echo of that, a repeat of that. That when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, God expresses his heart to Noah and to all of us in verse 21. This is amazing. 
that God opens himself up this way, his, an expression of his heart so that we can know more of the heart of our God. And God says, I will never again curse the ground because of men. He goes on to describe that in a few more verses here. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, he does call out that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, but God says, I will never again flood the earth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, verse 21. While the earth remains, God describes it here, poetic to some, but also calling it out in specifics. While the earth remains, so that's only for a time, a long time, but the earth will remain and then there will be a time where it will not. Seed time and harvest, both seasons, cold and heat, both extremes, summer and winter, both times of the year, day and night, every single day and half day, God says, shall not cease. It will continue because God is in charge. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? How about Genesis 1, verse 28? Now God says it to two groups in Genesis 1. He says to the creatures in verse chapter 1, verse 22, God blessed the creatures saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And then he says down in verse 28, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful. This is after he created mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Important distinction here. What was different about 28 from 22? Yes, not only was this God's charge or God's blessing or God's command to mankind versus creatures, but God has also given mankind dominion over all of the creatures, which he had just told the creatures to fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 2, the fear of you, he says to Noah and his sons, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Well, let's go back to Genesis 4. After Cain sinned against the Lord, after Cain murdered his brother Abel and sinned against the Lord, then Cain started freaking out. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In verse 13, verse 14, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Very similar language to Genesis 9, verse 2 here. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Now, point of distinction. Cain was concerned that another human was going to kill him because he had murdered his brother. And this protection in chapter 9, verse 2, is God protecting Noah and his sons and their wives from wild animals. But because God is in control, and because it would probably be detrimental to the multiplying and filling the earth, if any of those original characters leaving the ark died prematurely, or because of an animal attack, God said, I'm going to give you a special protection. And verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. This is a really important verse in a number of respects. Originally, 
Genesis 1, 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And then he goes on to describe that for the beasts of the earth, for the living creatures, I have given every green plant for food. In Genesis 1, God had given the plants for food. Vegetarians rejoice. But he changes all of that in chapter 9. God floods the earth. He leads Noah and his family out of the ark, back onto the earth. And he says, there's a change. Now, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. What's fascinating here, too, is that we see God quote Genesis. God's quoting what he said before, so... Figuring that Genesis, the book, the written word, had not been written down yet, God quotes himself. And God reiterates that his written word will last forever. His spoken word will last forever. That his word continues and God draws back and he remembers and he adds to when he adds to and he repeats when he wants to reiterate something that he has said. And he says that meat lovers can now rejoice, whether any mankind had 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 an inclination toward eating meat yet or not. But now we as meat eaters can thank God for Genesis 9 verse 3. Because biblically speaking, there is not a prohibition. Now, this is save the one verse with Paul in the New Testament where he says that at times I won't eat this if it causes my brother to stumble and in this. Now, those are very specific and limited situations, folks. So that aside, as a blanket statement, God has given every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, verse 3. Now, of course, this is going to get into the Old Testament laws later in the Torah, and God is going to have points of distinction, and he's going to have animals that are to be eaten and animals that are not to be eaten, and God will reiterate the animals for the sacrifices to be sacrificed to him on the altar. And it gets more specific, but largely, we can see that animals that God created shall be food for you, he says. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This is an important exception. He says in verse 5, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. If someone doesn't have blood in their body, if a living creature doesn't have blood, a mammal doesn't have blood in their body, they die. Blood is required, among other things, but blood is the primary life source. Our heart pumps the blood. It oxygenates the blood with help of the lungs, but it renews the blood, but it facilitates the blood. And without blood, we would not have life. And this is something that God reiterates over and over and over again in Scripture, that he created blood for a very specific reason, and it's not for consumption. So in verse 4, when he says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This is because God sees blood as part of the life force of notably mankind, and also his created living creatures on the earth. And that while we are free to eat the living creatures after they are dead, that's another important distinction that you will not eat them in part or in whole at all as they are alive, that they are to be killed, drained, and then consumed. Because As God establishes the way that we are to sacrifice to him, to worship to him, as we are to obey his commands, so too we are to obey him in this charge in Genesis 9, verse 3 and 4. 
And he says, and for your lifeblood, verse five, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. More specifics, next verse, verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Again, God quotes himself. God hearkens back to God's charge, to God's spoken word. God takes murder very seriously. Why? Because of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Trinitarian God of the Bible is speaking. That's why it's our. We talked about it back then. And let them, mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who else has dominion? Who has ultimate dominion? Who is the one that has all power and control? Who is the one who has ultimate power and control, who overrules anyone else with any amount of power or control? That's right. It's our God. So when in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over this and this and this and this. God is sharing part of his dominion, we're under his ultimate authority. But he is raising us up and saying, yes, let them have some dominion. And that's just one of the ways that we image God. And then verse 7, and this is noteworthy. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That's what God had just said in verse 1, and now he tags it in verse 7. But what's interesting here is, yeah, let's hop back to Genesis 1. I just read 26 and 27, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He continues, so God created a man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then for continuity... God blessed them in verse 28. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Look at how he words it here. If you still got your Bibles open, look at how he words it here in chapter nine. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. That's essentially 126 and 27. And you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It's like God is quoting himself, or now that we have the written word, you could say God is quoting Genesis 1, 26 or 28. And then God says to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Establish. That sounds familiar. Let's go back to Genesis 6, 18. See, it's all connected. It's all very much connected and it's very intentional. God is a purpose-driven, very intention-driven God. Back when he tells Noah, this is my plan, this is what I'm going to do before the flood, he says, 618, I will establish my covenant with you. And now we see in verse 9 of chapter 9, behold, I establish my covenant with you. God says, I will. And God says, I do in verse nine. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So it's not just Noah. It's not just his sons. It's everyone after him. I.e., the full lineage of humankind on earth who bows the knee to God. And with every living creature that is with you, oh, all the living creatures, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. God's making a covenant with the animals. He says, I establish my covenant with you, verse 11, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. What does God do? 
because God is a God who remembers. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You know what's interesting, folks? I think some of us who have been in the church most all of our lives or all of our lives and don't always look at all of the details of every verse in the Bible, especially with the creation stories that we think, oh, God created that one rainbow, perhaps just during these verses here. And, and that was almost like you're reading a, a children's storybook with the pictures, that this just had to do with Noah's flood. I mean, God's means of salvation, of, of bringing Noah out. And so he put a rainbow in the sky and said, that one rainbow right there at that one particular time means that I'll never destroy the earth again by water. But it's not just that. We see rainbows often, depending on where you live. In greater Western Washington and the greater Seattle area, we see rainbows uh, quite often because we have a fair amount of rain and clouds and that type of weather activity. But it's more specific than that. It's more specific than one rainbow at the time when God said, I remember. Because, yes, he had made the covenant with Noah about a year before or so. But Noah was right there. I do believe that God was also saying it for that time right there, obviously, because he was saying, I established my covenant with you. But let's continue. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, the rainbow is seen in the clouds, what we call a rainbow today. Scripture says bow. There's only one thing that appears in the sky that is notable after rain or sometimes in conjunction with rain and clouds, and that is a rainbow. God says, verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is seen in the clouds, I will see it and remember the what? The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. There's one other noticeable item right here. And I'll, well, let me first say, verse 16 says, the everlasting covenant. Everlasting. How long is everlasting? What's a time period on that? Oh, there is no end or time period on that. It's basically eternal. So that means every time we see a rainbow in the sky, whether we remember or not, whether we choose to think of that as Christians, as Bible believers, as people who know the story and have read Genesis or not, God says he remembers. He says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God has made a covenant. It is everlasting. God will never forget. And God will always remember. This last section I just said um, a moment ago reminds me of something else. We talked about back at the start of Genesis chapter 2. Let me read this for you, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And this was after the six days of creation. Probably remember the start of chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
I have a question for you. We see the same thing stated there three times. Why was it stated three times? And let me read something else to you. This is back to Genesis 9, where we just were. And let's start at verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God he is speaking, and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Just in these verses, God says the same thing four times, essentially. Why did God state it four times? Only God knows, but I interpret one because it's that important to God. And that's the primary two, because God is communicating it as is common with the Hebrew teaching patterns, that anything that's repeated once, twice, especially twice, so a total of three times, it's that important for the listener. It's that important for the one that they are addressing. And number three, I believe it's because God wants us to know God remembers at that time, specifically with Noah, when he exited the ark, built the altar, worshiped God, and God made the covenant with Noah. And even as we occasionally see rainbows in the sky present day, throughout our lives, now, today, on earth, God still remembers now. Thousands of man years later. I say it that way because this, this is the way that we're living our lives by our dates on the calendar, by our years on the calendar. And perhaps to God, a thousand years is like a day. But for thousands of years, for us, God still remembers. And God wants us to know he remembers God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten what you're going through. God is not apart from you. You might think in just your feelings or perhaps in your thoughts that he is, but he's not. And you can be reminded of his ever-present closeness by reading his word. And we see here in chapter 9 that God again testifies that he's always with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. God is faithful to his promises that God remembers his covenants with his people. And not only that, but that God quotes himself. He quotes scripture, testifying to its truth, to its consistency, that not an iota of the law will pass away, but it will remain forever. And God will remain forever. And his word will remain forever. And his relationship with you will remain forever despite present circumstance, despite future circumstance on the earth. God is patient. God is perseverant. God is passionate for a relationship with you. Will you respond in kind? Will you not trust in the things of this world, but will you trust in the Lord and believe in faith? And seek God and pursue God as God remembers daily 
will you remember daily. The one who has made all things, sustains all things, and sent his son to die for you. Let's pray. Loving God and tender God, holy God and righteous God, the one who knows the hearts of men, the one who knows the minds of men, the one who knows when we're going to be strong and when we're going to be weak, but you give us the free will to choose one or the other. Oh, you are a patient God and a good God because love enables freedom. Love enables choice. And it is love which closes that circle. It is love that chooses you. It is love that repents to you. It is love to stand up again, to not stay knocked down, and to reach for our Father, to reach for our Savior, to put all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our confidence in the one who will never disappoint us. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 9.